0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I am Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we're bringing you some baseball history. That's right, we're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be telling them. That's right. And today, you're pitching from the stretch. 100%. I don't know why it's a stretch, but anyway. I feel like I need to stretch. I need to stretch big time. My back hurts. Oh, God. Yeah, no. It always hurts, though. Yeah, I know. I spent most of this week writing this in, in bed, which is very comfortable until your lower back starts to just... Come together and how ah, this podcast and I did not intend for it to start about us griping about our lower back pain. I don't our know. Early We're in thirties. Yeah, well, whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. Yeah, we'll post some good stretches on there for lower back pain. <laughs> yes. uh, this month is Black History Month, and we are a history podcast. We're a baseball history podcast, and baseball history. Is full of black history. So we are bringing yeah. you another episode on black history about a really interesting person. Okay, before you get into a little bit about your story, I just wanted to... I, I talked to you a, a couple minutes about this. I wanted to correct something Oh, okay. in my episode last uh, time about uh, John Donaldson. Mm-hmm. Remember when I listed off his... Uh, it's not really a correction about John Donaldson <laughs> per se. Remember when I listed off his uh, name, his number of teams. Yes. And I said Austin Jackson, eat your heart out. Yes. I of course meant Edwin Jackson. Edwin Jackson. <laughs> I was wondering. I'm like Austin Jackson, center fielder. He did move around a bunch though, but not nearly as much no, as No, not Edwin as much Jackson. as the pitcher. Yeah. 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 For sure. Okay. So correction made. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just so you know that uh, that was supposed to be Edwin Jackson, but today. We're not talking about Edwin Jackson, though. He would make a good he would make a good episode, probably. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what his his he's. I'm sure there's a reason he was around <laughs> for, and and stayed around and went to so many different teams. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> all right. So today we already did the socials. We already did that. We didn't tell people to uh, give us a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or find us on Podbean and thank them for listening. That's great. Yeah, all those things. All those things. Thank you very much. Um, so for today, if I'm pitching, I feel like this is going to be a strong eight-inning performance. This is going to be a... Uh, this you're going to have go- a high game score oh. in this outing? Yeah, so I'm very excited. I wasn't exactly sure what this episode was going to look like. It was more of an idea, actually, about two people. And I started to write about the one person, and I realized, holy fuck, this one person is enough for an episode. We can, okay. we can do the other person later. So... Uh, today we're going to be talking about William Augustus Greenlee. William Augustus Greenley. That's right. So William Augustus Greenley was born in Marion, North Carolina on December 26th and... I have no idea what year, because Wikipedia says 1893, Sabre says 1895, as well as 1896, Find a Grave says 1895, Negro, Negro League's Museum says 1897, and Baseball Reference says 1895. Okay, so anywhere between 1893 and 1897. <laughs> 100%. Okay. No idea how That's old. not that much of a variance, no, but still. No, but still, it was just interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, Gus, as he would be known to the world, okay. uh, he grew up in a good family uh, considering the circumstances. So his father worked in masonry and bricklaying and was able to provide a nice, comfortable lifestyle for the family his mom was the product of a wife of a wealthy white slave owner who had had an affair with one of his slaves, her mom. All right. So, uh, yeah. Um, she took care of Gus as well as his three sisters and three brothers. And Gus is the oldest, uh, Gus's mom, uh, you know, is interracial. So she has pretty fair skin and it's pretty much passed down, uh, throughout the family. So they're a black family, but the okay. kids all have fairly light skin right. and a white grandfather, which basically affords them Some privileges at this time. A hundred percent. Okay. So yeah. They have a decent lifestyle. They grow up in the South. You know, it's not the best setting, but at the same point they, they you know, they mm-hmm. they don't struggle, they're not poor yeah. or anything like that. Not I, I should mention like, you know, some privileges with You know, some yeah limitations. Oh, oh, a hundred very privileges (laughs) compared to. As I've said in numerous episodes, just wait. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So, nevertheless, his father was a successful man, and education was stressed in the household. The boys were expected to have respectable careers, and the girls were, you know, expected to have babies. But anyways, Greenlee's three brothers all followed their parents' vision for them. Two became doctors, and one became a lawyer. But Gus, the oldest, would have none of this. Okay, is <laughs> <He's> a rebel. <laughs> yes, <laughs> to say the least, yes, 100%. <laughs> right. So, William Augustus Greenlee would make his mark on history and become a wealthy man, but his career was probably not described as respectable by his parents. All right. So, at 20, Greenlee drops out of college, and he jumps on a boxcar and heads to the place where dreams are made. Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's not what I was thinking. I was racking my brain there for a minute. And Pittsburgh was not number one on my list. Yeah, so he gets to Pittsburgh. I don't know what he's thinking, but he's dropped out of college. He's, you know, rejecting his parents' values at this God, point. I just can't wait to make steel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he does. Of course he does. So he gets to Pittsburgh. Uh, he, he gets to a job and he gets a wife named Helen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, Helen, but that's it. That's that's your only mention in this story. All right. So Greenlee worked a bunch of odd jobs uh, once he arrived in Steeltown. Of course, he worked at a steel mill operating a steam drill. Do you know what a steam drill is? I, I imagine it's a steam-powered thing that makes holes in things. All right, probably. So he also signed <laughs> shoes. Um, he worked construction, and he also chauffeured, and occasionally for a morgue as well. So. Hmm, I don't think that's really chauffeur. <laughs> he's bringing people from one point to another. They may not be alive, but... It's uh, just delivering, John. Yeah. <laughs> he was a delivery driver for people. Do yes. <laughs> you mean a taxi driver? No, they're dead. Yeah. <laughs> so he's a, he's a chauffeur and a taxi driver, but this is where he realizes, you know, everything... Everything of that that he becomes is all because he gets this job, really. So, Greenlee's a young, budding businessman, and eventually saves up to buy his own taxi cab. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. Smart. By this point, it's 1917, uh, and everything's put on hold because Greenlee enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War One. So... He's a black man. He's assigned to the 367th Infantry Regiment, uh, the 153rd Depot Brigade, as a machine gunner. Uh, All the enlisted personnel were African American, along with about four-fifths of the officers. So most of the officers are even African American, which is a big, you know, this is progressive at the time, though, Mm -hmm. you know, that one-fifth is probably the head officers, right? Right. So uh, with a few exceptions, the staff and field-grade officers, supply artillery, engineer, quartermasters were all white. So basically all the people that were in charge of everything else were white. So the regiment was highly segregated, including training camps that had a special Negro zone, including separate entertainment for black officers. So even with this army, you know, Bringing black people in and and forming black regiments—it's still highly segregated, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, right? This is 1917. So after training, uh, Greenlee was shipped to France, and the American government had a problem because they had trained all of these black soldiers, but then many white soldiers and many white politicians refused to have black soldiers fight alongside of white soldiers. It just—it doesn't make sense. I don't even know what to say to it. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing to say about it. It's so, it's... They're all trained. They're ready to go. They have all the same training. Yeah. But it's not... They're even, like, in segregated units. But they're like, Oh, no, no, no. We can't do an attack with, with that unit. You can't be seen like that. Yeah, so... <laughs> that's crazy. Um, yeah. Where am I here? So, with that, many black regiments uh, were assigned to the French... So the Americans were, yeah, just, like, were just like, here, here, yeah. here you go, France. Yeah. Although, you know, French colonial troops were probably kind of racist at the time, they didn't give a fuck who they were fighting next to. Yeah. Uh, they had been in the war for almost four years at that point, and it was absolutely a slaughter. So, uh, yeah, most of the black American soldiers who ended up dying or being wounded in World War I were actually killed fighting next to French soldiers. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, so just a little tidbit there. Hmm. So Greenlee would end up being one of those casualties. He fought at Verdun, which was just hell. Uh, I don't know exactly it was later on in the Verdun campaign. But eventually he got hit in the leg with shrapnel. Uh, and by the time he healed, the war was over. And Greenlee was discharged in March 1919 and returned home to take over Pittsburgh. The whole city. The whole city. Well, he must have made a lot of steel. Exactly. I mean, there's steel in his leg now. <laughs> That's how he got everybody. Yeah. Listen, my leg is steel. <laughs> so, Greenlee still had his cab, and this is how he would make his fortune, or at least start making his fortune. Uh, not by running around town for fares. No. Gus Greenlee would run booze. Oh. Nice. A bootlegger. Yeah, there you go. So, Greenlee used the cab as cover to sneak booze around the city of Pittsburgh. He supplied speakeasies around the town with whiskey and beer. And obviously he's taken a good cut being the middleman there. Yeah, as he so, would. Yeah, so Greenlee and his... a lot his, of risk there. There's a lot of risk, but Greenlee and his partner were, make, partner were making a fortune and soon opened up their own club, the Paramount Club. The police would raid the club and shut it down in 1922, though, but Greenlee just reopened in 1924. Once again, it got closed down soon after because of rumors that Caucasian women were, were, were running wild at the establishment. Oh, no. Phew. Oh, dear. We can't have that. Yeah. So they have having the... The girls are having too much fun. Shut it down. No. Well, it's white women were having fun in a black club. That's, you That's know, what I'm saying. The racism is. I know. Yeah. So despite the racism, Greenlee uh, kept buying properties and would eventually own a number of properties in Hill District, known as Little Harlem at the time, in Pittsburgh. mm mm-hmm. So it's the black community in Pittsburgh, and Greenlee needs to do something with all this booze money, right? So he starts buying up buildings and stuff. He bought the Collins Inn in 1924. Greenlee eventually bought a pool hall, a cafe, and, of course, the Crawford Grill. But we'll get to that. Okay. Now, that's a hint. I, I know. <laughs> I know. Okay. Okay. Your well, tone indicated that it was probably a hint. It, yep. was, it was a hint. Am I that obvious? Yeah. Okay. Um, so now I have a question for you, Etsy. Okay. What do you know about the history of the lottery? <laughs> <laughs> I know nothing of the history of the lottery, Sean. Well, how is it that we came up with this magic lottery where we just, you know, play it and I stuff? I just told you. I have no idea. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you're clearly tired today. I get it. Yeah. You were plowing snow all night. Yeah. Um, so, to give you a very bad short history of the lottery, the numbers, as it was called originally, was a local thing, and local bookies would essentially run a lottery in a neighborhood collecting money for a number... W- f- for a number, with draws happening daily, uh, people would pick three numbers. With the winners defined by the final digits that day of the New York Stock Exchange volume index, or by some other arbitrary number. Oh, okay. So they're like, they're like betting on yeah. the results of trading for the day or whatever. Yeah. So for as little as a penny, one could receive a payout as much as five or six dollars if your numbers hit. Wow, oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. So there'd be people coming around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And you'd they'd be like, hey, oh, you want to play the numbers today? And you'd be like, all right, three, seven, forty-two, right? Mm-hmm. And and that was or whatever, whatever. Yeah. Right? So in the end, you know that's three numbers. So three numbers, and you're picking one. That's a nine hundred and ninety-nine to one odds. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good in the uh, the the lottery's favor. Yeah. And once you get into like six, seven digits like we have today, then we're talking millions, right? Yeah, no kidding. So it's also good odds, because, you know, there's not that many people playing as well. So sometimes things go wrong, but most of the time, the lottery bookies would make a fair deal, and yeah. somebody in the neighborhood would win a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. So it was really like a grassroots thing. That's how the lottery started. Okay. So. That's, that's interesting. It would just be a dude walking around, taking the number. What? What if you won? Like, would that guy... Like, I feel like that guy would just avoid you if you won. Well, but then nobody would play with that yeah, that's guy. That's right? I guess. Like, it that's was true. really a community that's thing. True. That's fair um, enough. So, yeah, this is how Gus Greenlee would make even more money. So, in 1926, Gus and his two partners took over a small illegal numbers business and... And it was a small operation at first, but Greenlee would push to expand across Pittsburgh and Allegheny County. He had competitors in the business, but soon opportunity knocked for Gus. So according to the wonderful book, uh, Baseball's Leading Lady, Effa Manley and the Rise and Fall of the Negro Leagues by Andrea Williams, who initially introduced me to this Fantastic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, on a sweltering day in August 1930, something strange happened. Hundreds of gamblers on the same number, <laughs> sending many policy bankers into a financial tailspin. So somehow, across Pittsburgh, people all bet the same number and too many people win. Okay. So they got to make a big payout. Yeah. So at this point, they do what That's you a- just said. Uh, without enough money to cover all the winning payouts, some bankers <laughs> paid what they could and closed up shop, and many just simply were like, "Fuck this, I'm in. I'm out of here." Yeah, so they hmm. did. Uh, but Gus, interesting that like, is there more? Is there more to this? Like, no. is there mo- no? There's not. It's well, just there's... a coincidence that all those people bet the numbers. Well, I don't correctly. know. I mean, that it definitely. I was going like... to say it seems a little fishy, but it does. You never you know. know. Honestly, this. Have you ever seen Boardwalk Empire? Or do you know Boardwalk Empire? No, no. This is basically could be Boardwalk Empire. If anybody out there is listening to Boardwalk Empire, you know what kind of story we're kind of getting into. Um, but at the same point, you know, there's, you know, there might have been some highly, you know, organized crime shit going on behind the scenes here. But mm-hmm. Gus is generally seen as, as a nice guy that's just kind of making, he's he does things illegally, but he's, he's good. We'll get to it. So, mm-hmm. um... Mm-hmm. He sees this as an opportunity to expand his empire, though. So he makes sure to cover all of the clients' winnings and then moves into the territory. So he's like, fuck, I'll pay you, but I'm like, take it. Like, he takes over. Right. So he digs deep, sees it as an opportunity to make more money in the future, and it definitely works out because now he's running the numbers in, like, every neighborhood. Oh, okay. So he comes in, he pays off what everybody's payouts are, Yeah. You know, as people skip town and sign a good faith or whatever, be like, don't worry, I got, I'll cover that guy. Yeah. 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 Especially on the people that skip town In other places. He's just like, well, fucking, you know, you, you can't cover it. Like I'm moving in, get out. So anyways, with that, uh, Greenlee was able to make more money than ever before. Soon enough, he would have a numbers operation with 500 runners taking in up to $25,000 in bets a day. Damn. So in today's money, that's the equivalent of $420,000 a day. Every day. Every day. So if you did that... Holy shit. Okay, so I did the math here. If you did that for 300 days a year, that would be a $126 million operation. What? Yeah. Oh my goodness. So some of that money's getting paid out to... You know, winners. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you're keeping that. Yeah. So if it's 126 million, I have no doubt. Uh, you know, Gus Greenlee was making probably in today's terms probably about 100 million dollars. Him and his partners were sharing every year. That's insane. Yeah. It's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah. So at this point, you're probably wondering what the hell this has to do with baseball. A little bit. Am I responding that a few minutes ago? All right, calm down. Okay. That's my response to that. So. But you're probably wondering what Greenlee did with all his money and how he didn't get caught. The thing was, Greenlee may have been operating (laughs) several illegal operations, but he was seen as a hero in the black community, and that mostly kept him insulated. Um, So, Vernell A. Lilly, a professor emeritus of African Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, um, says that Greenlee and other runners were respected— They made their money probably from the numbers racket, but they turned that money into something very positive. If anybody wanted to buy a house, they could not go to Mellon Bank or Dollar Savings Bank. They had to go to Old Man Greenlee. So this is a point where black people still can't get loans from banks. Mm -hmm. So Greenlee has hundreds of millions of dollars now in today's terms, and he becomes essentially the bank. Yeah. Becomes a huge lender in the city. Yeah, and it's like all, it's it's a little yeah, it's a little bit lender. business, but it's also a lot of you know philanthropy as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, Gus probably bought off politicians, and he certainly bought into politics. Greenlee ran the Third Ward Voters League, which he would face charges for fixing a vote eventually, but he got off. Anyways, I think I'll mention that later. Uh, Black voters supported his candidates en masse. With his political capital, Greenlee was able to ally with several local Republican officials as well. And as the Depression settled in on America, Greenlee would step up his philanthropy, running a soup kitchen, lending money to those uh, men out of work, and even hired a publicist to spread word of his good deeds. So he's might smart. Well. Yeah, he's smart. He's like, okay, I'm gonna buy into politics. I'm gonna, you know, help the. He gets the community. He gets everybody on his side. So he might be a, you know, a, a gangster, or a criminal by some people's definitions, but he's actually seen as very loving and philanthropic. Mm-hmm. Um, so well, he's he's doing all those things at the same time. Oh know? yeah. Can be both of those things. You hundred percent can be both of those things. Yeah. Um, so at this point, Greenlee is essentially the the dawn of Pittsburgh, and is essentially untouchable. Uh, you know, he does constantly get into legal issues, and you'll see. But, you know, he mainly gets off, especially at this point. He employs hundreds and hundreds of people. Once again, once you employ enough people, the government has a hard time bringing you down because <laughs> they understand that all those people will be mad at you. Um, or yeah. at them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, essentially, uh, where is it? Uh, give money to families. He's, yeah, so... He was a bank for the local black community that was shunned by bankers. So he faced legal troubles constantly, as I mentioned, uh, but was able to escape prosecution. He was charged and later dismissed in collection in connection with election fraud in a race in Ward 3 in 1931. And in December 1932, he was indicted w- in connection with his illegal lottery business. Eventually, this would catch up to him. But at the moment, Greenlee was on top of the town. So... Mm-hmm. In 1930, Greenlee would invest some money, as I noted before, in a building at the corner of Crawford Street and Wiley Avenue, and that was called the Crawford Grill. Yeah, I don't know where this is going. So this is where Greenlee would run his operation, and it turned into a legendary local establishment. The third floor. Club Crawford was a semi-private VIP section where top jazz performers of the day entertained. Over the years, Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Ella Fitzgerald, etc., etc., all performed at the club. Uh, The club became a hangout for black and white entertainers and sportsmen. So in 1930, he's got this club going and he suddenly is like, yo... I'm going to promote sports. That's what I'm going to do now. Make a sports bar. Exactly. Not a sports bar. But also at the time, a lot of people are like, he was also probably trying to find a way to launder some money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. But once again, (laughs) the story is much nicer than maybe his intentions actually were. Uh, So in 1925, a group of neighborhood boys from Hilltop... One of which was Charles Harris, uh, a brother to one of Greenlee's numbers partners, formed what was known as the Crawford Colored Giants. The Crawfords had begun as an interracial team of the local Hale District. Youth who played ball together in the neighborhood would put on games at local sandlots. As the team became more professionalized, though, colored lines would be drawn and it became an all-black semi-pro team. So... Mm -hmm. They're kids. They're growing up. They're like, hey, yeah, we get to play together. And then at some point, someone's like, no. Yeah. You're too good sad. now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys over there. You guys over there. we split you guys up. <laughs> yeah. So they become a semi-pro team. But in late 1930, the, the team was broke and they needed help financially. The leaders of the team went to the Crawford Grill and pleaded for financial help. At first, Greenlee resisted. Right, So this gives me the thought that he was like, ah, no, fuck you guys. Like, no, I got other shit to do. And then was like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You can make tons of money yeah. from this. <laughs> so he realizes he's just like, yeah, uh, fuck it. I'll buy your team. Um, so not only does he buy the team, he's like, okay, you're now the Pittsburgh Crawfords. I was going to say, when's that coming around? Yeah. Simply also known as the Cross. Which is mm-hmm. awesome, but I'm just going to call them the Crawfants. craw craw. <laughs> so Greenlee decided that each player would get a salary. Very unusual for the time. Uh, normally pay was based on a percentage of the gate, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. maybe players would get a percentage of the gate. So still the team uh, was a bit of a mess, even though the players were thrilled to get consistent money. Um, the Pittsburgh Courier said in 1931... Uh, <laughs> Dis- a disorganized team of temperamentals without a single brainy pitcher. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> that's their reputation when he takes over the team. So a sh- bunch of short-fused guys, and none of them know how to pitch with their brains. Pretty much. So they got stuff, but... Yeah, they got yeah. raw talent, but they're a they're bunch of whiny idiots. Okay. So... Greenley obviously wanted his new investment to profit. And to do so, he wanted to see the team in a league. So he's like, okay, well, we got to do a league. The problem was the original Negro National League was, was pretty much folding at the time. Um, and then he's just like, oh, I got to do that, but I need players first. I need to do players. So he wanted to invest in players, and he goes, boy, howdy. What do I need? Apparently, according to the courier, he needs a brainy pitcher. So who does he <laughs> sign in 1931? Satchel Pitch. Was, that was going to be my guess. Yeah. So the brainiest pitcher of all time, yeah, basically. The craftiest guy you could possibly get. Yeah. So, the What te- year was this? 1931. Okay. So they, they had come to him in 1930. So there's another team in Pittsburgh, though, Uh they beat this team in August of that year with Satchel helping out. He didn't start the game, but he finished the game strong for them. Mm-hmm. And that team's the Homestead Grays. Mm-hmm. So, right, that's the other thing. Greenlee's kind of moving in once again on, on somebody else's territory here. Yeah. It wouldn't exactly make sense to have you know two black teams in Pittsburgh, but Greenlee has the capital, and he's just like, well, we're gonna, I'm gonna try this. We're gonna try this out. So they beat the Homestead Grays in August with the help of Paige, and suddenly they're the talk of the town. So his plan works. He's like, oh, I'm going to bring in this guy. He's going to be great. So sports writer W. Rollo Wilson declared, Gus Greenlee has built an exceptionally good team. In the short while he has owned the former Sandlotters. All right. So they're singing his praises. Yeah. He's turned this team right around. Yeah. Okay. So now Greenlee decides... He's got his team. He's going to build something every team needs. A home. Right. So in 1931, construction started on Bedford Avenue between Chauncey and Duff in Pittsburgh's Hill District. And by 1932 season, construction was complete on the first stadium built for a black baseball team. Hmm. So until then... Teams would rent from white owners, and those white owners were racist assholes that wouldn't let the Negro League teams use their dressing rooms or other park amenities. Motherfuckers. Exactly. So Greeny's like, well, I'm basically a... billionaire right like i'll just build my own stadium yeah so he builds this it costs about a hundred thousand dollars to build no, it's a drop in the bucket oh 100 percent, right and it's just like i mean i think in today's money it was like a million and a bit which is like oh i wish we could build a stadiums for a yeah. million and a bit nowadays <laughs> apparently it costs the small country's gdp to just have a ballpark in a city st- anyways besides that <laughs> we uh, digress yeah yeah so let's pause for a second here um because, as I say, the aforementioned Homestead Grays are in town as well. And they're run by Cumberland Willis Posey Jr., otherwise known as Cum. But we're not going to say his name like that, <laughs> even though that's his name. Anyways, the team was formed in 1912. Uh, I'm talking about the Homestead Grays, in Homestead, Pennsylvania, adjacent to Pittsburgh. By 1920, with increasing popularity in the Pittsburgh region, the team crossed the Monongahela River uh, (laughs) to play all (laughs) its home... I don't know. Pronounce that word. Let me see it. M-O-N-O-N-G-A-H-E-L-A. Where is it? Mono... Monon... Monongala? yeah, Monagala, Monagala River. okay, whatever. So eventually the the Homestead Greys cross the river and they play their all their home games at Forbes Field, um, mm-hmm. where they're not allowed to use the dressing rooms, as I said. Uh, mm-hmm. they were they were good at the time, and at this time the Greys were very, very good. So in 1931, excuse me, uh, they had won 33 games against uh, major black teams and lost just 18, leading Compose to claim that they were the undisputed champions. Even though it's a weird thing to just be like, yeah, we won, we were 15 games over 500, we're the best. (laughs) So um, the Grays featured sluggers Josh Gibson and Oscar Charleston, but by 1932, they would lose both of their sluggers to the up-and-coming Crawfords. And start a feud between Greenlee and Posey that would continue throughout the 1930s. So, all right, so you got these two feuding owners stealing players off each other. A hundred percent. Doesn't that sound familiar? Exactly. This is great. <laughs> no, That's what I mean. I was so excited for this one because it's just, it's, it's the exact same stuff we talk about with <laughs> <laughs> any owner's episode. It's so slimy. Anyways, um, I, I should put... Uh, So as well, he was a player for the Homestead Grays that came from, just like uh, Greenlee, like a good background. Mm -hmm. So he was eventually able to to purchase the team and stuff like that. But he's more of a a player's owner because he used to actually be a player. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just, just a side note there. So on January 23rd, 1923, or sorry, 1932, a little dyslexia, uh, the Pittsburgh Courier printed a credible rumor that Greenlee was trying to hire Charleston. So, two weeks... Be a good l- hire. Yeah. Two weeks later, Greenlee announced that he had signed his new pilot. Charleston was to be a player manager, and him and Greenlee began to form a team, and one of the manager's first acquisitions was Josh Gibson. So, as wow. uh, stacking it up. Yeah. And they're both from the Grays, so it's pissing off Posey a lot. Yeah, of course. Uh, Greenlee offered him a salary taking the two best fucking yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> honestly, just steals the two best players on that team. So he offers him a salary of two hundred fifty dollars a month, a hundred more dollars than Posey was playing, paying him. So it's honestly the difference between somebody offering you uh, about four thousand dollars a month versus twenty five hundred dollars a month nowadays. So, either way, exactly, exactly. So, in 1932, uh, the Crawfords are they have Page, you know, they have Mm -hmm. they have Gibson, like, honestly, they have Charleston, it's like stacking it up, stacking it up. So, in 1932, uh, Posey has started the East West League, and Crawfords try to join the East West League because that's what Greenlee wants. He's like, no, I don't want to be a barnstorming team, I want to be, I want to have. That like consistent schedule, yeah. So <laughs> obviously, Posey rejects the team from joining the league that he started right. because they just stole his best yeah. players. Yeah. Um, so go figure. Uh, Posey did consider adding the team to the league, but his requests were outlandish. <laughs> this is great. So Posey's like, "Yeah, you can join the league. Here's my rider." Yeah. <laughs> so his rider was. Uh, He got to control the roster and the schedule for for the team, of of the other team. (laughs) Uh, He would impose a salary cap on the team. And finally, which is a big deal because Greenlee's much richer than than Posey. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And then finally, uh, the team would have to hire Posey's brother, Seward, To be like the club's financial manager, (laughs) so essentially he's like, yeah, you gotta hire. My brother has to see the financials because he's he knows he's like a a a gangster. Essentially, he's like, yeah, "Yeah, my brother will be checking all the receipts and everything, (laughs) doing checks and balances on you. So Greenlee says no, thank you. Like, thanks, but no, thanks. We we don't want to join the league. Yeah. Um. So he just continues to book games outside the league. Um. Uh. In as you know, he's building the stadium, so it's ready. In 1932, and on April 29th, 1932, the inaugural game was played uh, between uh, the Pittsburgh Crawfords and the New York Black Giants. Or, sorry, New York Black Yankees. Sorry, my bad. Uh, The New York Black Yankees. So... Uh, Everyone was in attendance, from the mayor to local officials and politicians. It was a big thing. Greenlee made a grand entrance, clad in a white silk suit, shirt, tie, and buck shoes. He rode into the park, standing inside a red Packard convertible. (laughs) So amazing. Charles Finley vibes. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's (laughs) like it's a big show spectacle about him. Then he told his assistant to go paint those sheep. (laughs) He's not I swear, if he if he didn't have the whole like booze running and and numbers running, he probably would have been like that. But yeah. He has other things to deal with. He just wants to make a big show for the community, right? Yeah. So um yeah, so they lost to the Yankees, unfortunately. Uh, one to nothing. But of course Paige put on a show and struck out ten batters. Uh, mm. so uh there was also like a marching band, like there was a whole thing. I don't think I really needed yeah, to go into spectacle. that. Yeah, so the Crawfords uh, would win the next day, they'd play the the Black Yankees again, uh and returned later that year, Page became the... Okay, so the Yankees, Black Yankees, returned later that year, and Page became the first Crawford Moundsman to pitch a no-hitter at the new Greenleaf Field. Nice. Yeah, so Page throws a no-hitter against them later that year, but they still don't really have a league, so they're just playing games Mm -hmm. wherever. Oh, they also have a really nice bus at this time. I didn't really include it, but I just thought a lot of the pictures of the Pittsburgh Crawfords are in front of this bus that was, like, the fanciest bus of the time. So, like, no wonder he was just you know, poaching players oh, from everybody. he had the best amenities. Well, exactly. He's like, you get your own field, you get this fancy boss. Like, it is, you know, he was really using his mm. financial weight. Would too. you like to play the numbers? Yeah, yeah. So, now that Greenlee had his team and he had his stadium, he kept pushing and innovating. Uh When gate, gate receipts dwindled in the summer... He, In the summer heat, he decided to play games at night and spent thousands more dollars to install lights on the field, which Mm. is like unheard of at this time. Yeah, ridiculously unheard of. So Greenlee, as we know, was not a rule follower, and he realized that Sundays were the best days for fans, but baseball on Sundays was prohibited under Pennsylvania's blue law. So Greenlee scheduled a night game between the Crawfords and the Grays. It began at 12.01 a.m. Monday morning. What, midnight? Yeah. B- why? Because you can't play on Sunday, but uh, everybody okay. has the day off gotcha. on Sunday. I don't know. He was just being a. He's just put it on Monday, September 19th, 1932. Uh, they play this game under lights at midnight. Mm hmm. Like, it's absolutely just, you know, it's just a show. It's another another publicity stunt at the same point. It's also him, like, snubbing his his thumb at the Blue Laws, which essentially he's a booze runner, so he's already (laughs) doing that regularly. Um, So 3,000 people show up, and they watch baseball under the lights until the early morning. Uh, Something that was just... It would have been just an amazing experience at the time. Nothing like this would have happened ever before. And this is why we're talking about this guy, because, like, holy shit. So... Greenlee would repeat the novelty promotion years later as well. Um, But here's when Greenlee really starts pushing. So before the 1933 season, Greenlee wants to be in a league. Uh, The East-West League, he tried to join that Posey had formed. Posey... That's ruled them out, stipulated them out. Yeah, but that that doesn't last long. That lasts like a year or two. Oh, okay. So, Greenlee brought together seven owners of the best black baseball teams in the country, including his own crosstown rivals, Composey and the Homestead Grays. Mm-hmm. The East-West League had failed because they really didn't have the best teams, right? right? Yeah. So, well, you can see that he didn't include the Crawfords who had, <laughs> yeah. had some of the best players. So... He didn't want to make that mistake. And he's like, fuck it. Like I know I don't like the Greys and they snub me, but I'm going to invite them in anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so Rube Foster had tried this before. Rube Foster is a story for another day. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's it's much more well known. So it might be a while till we cover that one. But forming his own uh, Negro National League in 1920, but the league cla- had collapsed in 1931 and had its fair share of controversies and mismanagement. Foster was often accused of heavily favoring his uh, uh, Chicago American Giants, and Greenlee most likely wanted to avoid those kind of optics but you'll see (laughs) (laughs) with that thinking he doesn't uh with that although he was one of the wealthiest owners greenley himself demanded that roster salaries not total more than 1600 a month so he's imposing his own salary cap for this league he wants to put together okay uh you know he's trying to appease others he's he's you Mm -hmm. know like okay i know i'm richer than most of you but like we'll do a salary cap yeah uh, he also had other innovations he pushed, including a fan voted all-star game, huh. which is uh, something. So people were like listening. they're like, okay, we're interested. Yeah um, And also, remember when I said he included the Homestead Grays? Well, he did until Greenlee accused Posey of unfairly rating the now debunked Detroit Stars roster. So uh, so it's just like a a, a ticking time bomb the whole time. Like these two guys are, well, that was the original idea for the story was Posey versus Greenlee. And then I just started reading about Greenlee and I was like, okay, this guy just, we can, we can focus uh, mainly on this guy. Yeah. yeah. So the inaugural season, uh, so they kick out the, 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 what's it called? The, uh, the Grays, but they still have this, this six team league. Uh, So, the inaugural season. <laughs> they just booted them out of the league? Yeah, they were just like, fuck you guys, you're out. <laughs> like, what about the players? <laughs> they go barnstorm or something yeah, like that. Like, the won't. team's still a team, but, like, they just don't play in this league. Well, that now. sucks for the players, I guess. Well, but yeah, but that's that's what I mean. Well, this few. Baseball, baby. You'll see. You'll see. So, <laughs> so anyways. Um,. The inaugural season of the second iteration of the Negro National League took place in 1933 with Greenlee as league president. Uh, there were seven teams the Nashville Elite Giants, Coles American Giants, which were Chicago, uh, Brooklyn Royal Giants, so many Giants, what? Columbus Bluebirds, the Baltimore Black Sox, Indianapolis ABCs, and of course the Pittsburgh Crawfords. Mm-hmm. How many Giants were there? Three? Three Giants. Three Giants. More Giants. There's so many Giants. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of these teams would only last a year or two, but but some of them would be there for a long time, and, and mm-hmm. some of them would come in and out. But either way, so the first Black All-Star game uh, was held with great success that year in September at Comiskey Field in Chicago, with fans voting for the team. And this was a big deal, right? Um, and I didn't really understand how big of a deal this was and how much of a draw this was for negro league fans um because i'm a white canadian guy but (laughs) the best way to do to describe how important this was was to just let buck o'neill describe how important this was okay so a quote from buck o'neill while the big leaguers left the choice of the players up to the sports writers gus Greenlee left it up to the fans after reading about great players in the defender and the courier for so many years they could cut out ballots in the black papers and send it in I have to say that was pretty important thing for black people in, to do in those days to be able to vote, even if it was just for ball players and they sent in thousands and thousands of ballots. So hmm. wow. I didn't understand that nuance at first yeah. until I found that quote and yeah. I was like, Holy shit. That is, uh, that's big. That's yeah. like empowerment right there. Yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. So, that's cool. so, This was a huge success uh, for the league. Uh, Crawford's player manager, Oscar Charleston, received the most votes with 43,793. For the league, the idea was to have the first half winner play the second half winner uh, for the pennant, but for some reason in 1933, the American Giants won the first half and Greenlee's Crawfords finished uh, won the second half, but they didn't play together and somehow the Crawfords just got awarded the pennant because they had the better winning percentage there's so much so much for favoring your team guys so so like was it be like the series got canceled or something that was just the format Was like okay we got a first place for the first half second place for the second half And whichever one of those two did better in their respective half is the champion. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what happened, but it was horrible. For it was controversial, and and you'll see actually because the next year no, well the next year there's just as much kind of controversy. Once again, it's it's so with the success, uh, it grew to ten teams in 1934, uh, including the Crawfords' rivals the Grace, So they're like, all right, Grace, all right, you, got, you come right, back come, in. Yeah. Come on back in, buddy. Yeah, so they also added teams uh, like the Philadelphia Stars and the New Newark Dodgers as well. So teams would uh, fold and new teams would fill the void throughout the league's history. The Crawfords did not repeat their success in 1934, but did have the best overall record. So if you put first and second half records together, they were the best, but they didn't win either of the first or second half, so they didn't take part in the Pennant Series, even though they were like, we won. And it's just like, shut up. Like you don't get to just make make this up in my brain. Exactly. So most importantly though, when people think of the Pittsburgh Crawfords, they think of 1935. Because in 1935 the roster was known for having arguably the greatest roster in Negro Negro League's history. They got Josh Gibson, Oscar Charleston, Judy Johnson, who was the team captain and third baseman. Mm-hmm. also great person uh, great ball player nobody's heard of cool papa bell hit 345 and caught every fly ball imaginable uh, in 1935 they went 51 27 and 3 overall they won the negro leagues the negro national leagues first half championship uh, they faced the new york cubans in a hard fought seven game championship series and came out on top so that year what they stacked d- roster on that, that just, just insane awesome and that's, I didn't even mention, Satchel Paige was on that roster. Jesus. But he didn't play for the team. What? Yo! What do you mean? <laughs> this is great. So, <laughs> explain. <laughs> due to a contract dispute, Paige did not play that season. So, this, there's some very weird context to this, which I would never expected to find. So, anyways, after the 1934 season, Paige got married, and at the wedding... Greenlee addressed the crowd with his arm around Satchel. And I'll quote from Larry, Larry Ty's 2009 book, Satchel. With his guests expecting a wedding toast, the Crawford's owner threw them a curve. Satchel oh, no. won't be leaving us. Don't worry about that, Gus announced, arm around the star. I got a new contract for him. Satchel and Gus sat down and signed right there as they had agreed beforehand. So they, he's just, at his wedding, they're just like... I'm going to do my toast, but listen, we're going to sign your contract. Yeah, he's I'm very, just, like, wrestling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, we're just like, yeah, he's making a big show of it. Um, so... Two showmen, I guess. But at the same point, Satchel's like, oh, shit, like, wait a minute. Like, I probably should have, like, sat down and, like, negotiated. Said, like, it feels like he... I was going to say it... it felt like he was kind of being put on the spot until you said they discussed it beforehand. But Well, he, he definitely felt like he got put on the spot. Yeah. Okay. He got put on the spot. It's a little bit of both. Yeah. So he th- rethought the surprise contract signing. Right. Because maybe they talked about it beforehand at the end of the series. Literally like a couple hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> at the bar at the wedding. Yeah, okay. I drew yeah. everything up. Just sign here. Right. <laughs> so. You know, it'd be great. Satchel. You pitch for us next year. <laughs> yeah, I guess I could probably do that. All right, I'll dry everything up. So Satchel rethought, and he wanted 250 a month, like Gibson was getting. hmm And Greenlee refused. Okay. And in 1930, 1930- dispute. Yeah, in 1934 was probably Satchel's best season ever. hmm He was ridiculous. I don't have the numbers. He was just good. Look it up. Um, Satchel went to North Dakota instead. For more money, because he was going to get paid four hundred dollars a month there, Might so he just well. says, "Fuck this, I'm out of here." And Greenlee is furious. So he is. President. We had a deal. We had a deal. <laughs> Remember your wedding when you were drunk? I made you sign those papers. <laughs> Put you on the spot in front of everybody. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, Greenlee's the president of the league. So Greenlee says, You're banned from the league, right? Like, you can't come back. Um, And he definitely breaks his own (laughs) rule. I was going to say. He hasn't stuck to many of his yeah, rules so no, far. No, 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 he doesn't. Compose he's been in and out of the league three or four times well, Exactly. On it. it sounds like you just need to give Greenlee a year to chill out and he's your friend again. So um, go ask Mr. Greenlee for a favor after he's had his shots. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So in the previous year, in 1934, uh, Page matched up against Philadelphia's Slim Jones, awesome name, who was just as good, if not better, than Page in 1934, who, that was his best year. So, uh, quote from Jack Morelli's Heroes of the Negro Leagues, "...over 30,000 fans watched Slim sling a six-inning perfect game to lead Satch's squad 1-0." Oscar Charleston broke it up in the seventh, and Pittsburgh pushed across a run to tie. Slim and Satchel duelled mightily, trading strikeouts until the heart pounding nail butter was called by nightfall in the tenth. So this game, it just did. They it just won ended one because it was too dark. It was, but but both Slim and Satchel are just dealing. Dealing so these 30,000 people, I believe this was an exhibition game, so so, but either way, it was a huge spectacle. It was written about as one of the greatest pitching duels of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, so Greenlee wanted to recreate that magic, but he didn't have satchel page, yeah. right? So he booked a game between the two teams on the same day, one year later, at Yankee Stadium. All right, so. He thought he could make a page an offer he couldn't refuse, so he offered Page three hundred and fifty dollars for one game. All right. And to his knowledge, Satchel was on his way. Mm-hmm. Uh So he set out marketing it. The big showdown of you know Slim versus Page. It's going to be fantastic. The two best pitchers in black baseball at the time. But Page didn't show up, so. We hyped that all up and he just like stood them up the day of. And I think like, he took the money. The day I think he took oh, the money man. too. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So Paige didn't show. Greenlee informed the press that Paige had stopped in Chicago en route to the Empire State for a doubleheader. And had been offered $500 to pitch for the Monarchs instead on September 22nd. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. But Page did pitch for the Monarchs in some exhibition games mm-hmm. later on, like that year and stuff like that. But yeah. it's it, it sounds like he might have just been lashing out in the press and been mm-hmm. like, well, he was going to come. But then somebody offered him more money, like just trying to cover his own ass and making people think he's greedy. Yeah. Um, so fifteen thousand fans showed up for the game, but it was a bust, and Slim Jones didn't even escape the first inning. So you know, it's whatever. It is what it is. Yeah. It, it turned out pretty embarrassing yeah, for you Greenlee. Can't, you can't like, you can't hype up a baseball game to like you know, know exactly what's gonna go down. Yeah. So Greenlee's embarrassed, and but like he gives in to Paige as well. So okay. He brings Paige back for 1936 by offering him a record $600 a month to join the Crawfords. So this is a record Big contract salary. at the time. Yeah. So this is a good idea, I guess, because uh, Greenlee's Crawfords would win. And they'd win the title. Okay. Their last title. Their last one. Mm-hmm. Kind of so uh that doesn't make sense no you'll, this doesn't make sense so in 1936 the second half champions was determined by a five game series between the Crawfords and Effa manley's Newark Eagles it it is a bit unclear whether this was a formal playoff series or just a regular season series that ended up acting like a de facto like play-in series um but the Crawfords ended up winning the series three one and one. Um, the Crawfords and the Elite Giants then met in a championship series. At least three games were played in that series, but as best we can tell, the series was abandoned at some point and no former playoff winner was declared. Still, Gus is in charge, so most of the history books say the Crawfords won. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he I'm never finished say. the series, but he was probably like, oh, we were up 2-1. So yes. like, uh, <laughs> he started losing and he just walked out, shut it down, took his ball and went home was like, we won. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know but so it's it's a weird change. That's what I'm assuming. Huh? Yeah. Um so in 1937 page and other negro league stars would slowly begin to be siphoned off to play for Rafael Trujillo dictator of oh, the yeah, Dominican yeah. Republic. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's a great dollop episode on this I think they just released, so we're not going to get into this too much. But a total of seven of Greenlee's players would leave for the island, and the once great Crawford slowly began to fall apart. To top this off, black fans were put off <laughs> after the white members of the team's board forced Greenlee to shut out blacks from jobs at Greenlee Field. So what the fuck, man? (laughs) You're losing all your, like, social capital here. Yeah, you built up all that, like credibility in the community and then you just flush it all away well and your players are leaving right that's not necessarily your no, fault. no that's not his fault but they're th- yeah they're but, leaving because the dictator who is rich is like here's a bunch of money yeah, i'm more rich yeah. than Greenlee. <laughs> i i have this island well half an island but anyways yes. <laughs> um <laughs> so but I, I, it just doesn't make sense like obviously the white people sucked uh at the time but like it's in a greenly fields in a black neighborhood like why can't there be black ushers or ticket takers. Mm-hmm. So it's just a bunch of political bullshit. What? And and once again this could be some behind the scenes shit where he's making deals that, you know, history mm-hmm. the history books don't know about. Like, he's capitulating it's to a racist board are. member in order to not, you know, get blackmailed or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, we're just we're just going to make... this wild speculation. Wild, spe- wild speculation like- on baseball with Sean and Ed. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, Greenlee um, was also distracted by the stable of boxers that he owned, including the first black light heavyweight champion in 1935, John Henry Lewis. Greenlee's focus from his team waned as he invested more and more in his boxers. Greenlee had also dominated in Pittsburgh during Prohibition, but that was over now, right? So so a big part of his income also disappears in the early nineteen thirties because alcohol becomes legal again and, and his mm-hmm. his booze business, you know, he's not making yeah. nearly as now much you money. You can't bootleg because yeah. it's everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, so his operation for the first time starts to to experienced some financial troubles and and people are also moving in on his numbers racket, right? That's what happens when any empire expands too big, right? You Mm -hmm. you can't control everything and slowly you start losing little pieces of it. So other team owners, particularly Posey... uh, (laughs) Uh, Posey and Abe? Oh, Abe and Effa Manley, of course. Something. Like, Posey and Abe! Classic... <laughs> so other team classic owners... Classic duo. Classic duo. So particularly Posey uh, and Abe and Effa Manley of the New York Eagles became a little disgruntled with Greenlee's leadership. Uh, obviously, he's distracted. He's got all this business shit. He's got boxers and stuff like that. And he could be mm-hmm. pushy. He could be a bit of a dictator yeah. himself. He yeah. was a big guy, too. He's like 6'2 and like 230. Like Kind of he, imposing. Yeah, he's an imposing guy and kind of imposed pretty hard, especially it feels like as he became comfortable with his role as president. Mm-hmm. So they start pushing to, they're like, fuck this guy. Like, fucking get him out we want to be a part of this league still but like you need to not be president yeah so this is essentially the end of Greenlee and the Crawfords so in January uh, of 1939 1939 just sucks for Greenlee it's just not a good year so in January his brother dies in a car crash uh, the uh, following day, John Henry Lewis was knocked out in the first round after moving up in a class f- to fight heavyweight champion Joe Lewis. <laughs> so, okay, so he, I was going to ask if that was Joe Lewis, no, but obviously no. No, <laughs> they're they're Lewis. They're two different Lewis's right, in, in spelling right. too. But yeah, no, no. He's like, oh yeah, you're going to fight Joe Lewis, and it's uh, uh, like, uh, just like, <laughs> boom, got <laughs> no. one punch. So obviously, Greenlee <laughs> probably had put a lot of money on that too, and yeah. that didn't work yeah. out. Uh, so his career would never recover. The the John Henry Lewis, the the boxer, it was never like. I think by June that year, he got he lost his title and just mm-hmm. everything he just was just done. shook from that. Yeah. Out. So, uh, like a month later, Greenlee acquiesces and and the, uh, to the other owners, and he steps down as league president. Okay. So it's his so he little resigns. yeah. He he you know he had his t- he had his league, but now he's no longer in charge. And at that point in April he announces that he's selling the Pittsburgh Crawfords. So they're moving to Toledo. Okay. Yeah. To become the Mudhens. Yeah, no, yeah, but they they're the Toledo Crawfords, I know, but I know. <laughs> so he uh, spitball in here. Yeah, he... <laughs> I'm, ti- I'm very tired. <laughs> <laughs> Great tired performance. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, he left. He left pretty bitterly. Uh, he he had some pretty harsh words. As we know, he wasn't afraid to throw some weight around in the press and yeah. say say bad things about people. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also uh, left with a few uh, unpaid debts and uh, a few few checks that probably bounced as well. So. He's kind of fuck this. I'm out. You guys are mean. He, st- he doesn't still have the numbers business. He does, but it's just not as profitable. You know, he's running all these nightclubs and stuff like that. Right. He's pr- still a really rich man. It's just, you know, he's not making as much money. The booze game took yeah, a huge chunk. Yeah, that's turn. all gone. Yeah, so he's he's just you know he's still rich. It's just he's you know he has, to, he has to pay people. He has to yeah. you know run his business and stuff Fair like enough. that. So he owns a lot. Um, and also, his ballpark had fallen into disrepair at this point, which is kind of weird because it's only been five years <laughs> <laughs> or six yeah. years. Um, so the city of Pittsburgh had their sights set on the development. Uh, they wanted to. They got this grant to build, you know, social housing and business development, and they were like, "Hey, there's some good land. There's some good land." The decrepit stadium on it. Yeah, exactly. So they offered Gus and his partners fifty thousand for it, less than half of what it costs to build. Say. So. At first they resisted, but eventually their financial woes forced them to accept the fifty k. So they Rogers them. Yeah, exactly. And they really <laughs> did. They really did because then the Pittsburgh Housing Authority immediately dropped the offer to thirty eight thousand. Oh motherfuckers, <laughs> <You> <laughs> fucking assholes. <laughs> Jesus. So I mean, there's a so there's, he still faces a lot of shitty racism and oh, stuff fuck, like that. that like, sucks. yeah. So. Um, Greenlee would not give up on baseball, and as early as the next year, he was putting out calls for players to form a new Crawford's club. So weird. He disbands. He sells the field, but he's like, oh, I'm still going to well, run a baseball. I got a bus. That was kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, that bus isn't doing anything. Yeah. So so his so his time as league president though did not leave a good taste in the mouth of the other owners. So even if he could put a team together, nobody wants him in his in their leagues. Right. Right. So. There was even rumors that that Greenlee had been involved in game fixing scheme between the against the Brooklyn Bushwicks back in 1936. So there was a lot of there was a lot of shade behind uh, his uh, his reputation. Mm-hmm. It was a lot was, of skepticism. Yeah. obviously. Yeah. So With he, good reason. So he tries, but he just kind of fades off for a few years. And in 1944, Greenlee pushed to get back into baseball and decided to be a shithead about it. At least in the owner's eyes. <laughs> so he roused up players before the All-Star game in 1944, uh, you know, that he helped create this All-Star spectacle that he helped form. But anyways, he, he starts talking to players and he's like, hey, how much you get paid for the All-Star game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like, you should probably get paid more. Let me tell you how much money we used to make off that All-Star game. <laughs> so he's just kind of whispering in some of the players' ears about... Stirring the pot up. Yeah, he's being a dick about it. But at the same point, he's probably right. They probably did deserve more, but he's reasons for doing so are really shitty. Yeah. <laughs> so he told got his own agenda. Yeah, so he tells the, the players to demand more money. And he obviously he's talking to the All-Star players. So the Eastern All-Stars begin to demand more money for their participation. So the owners are like, what the fuck, Greenlee? <laughs> we know this is you. So... Uh, he does put together a team at this point. He poaches players from the Homestead Grays. Oh my god! It's always from the Grays. He's just like, ah, I'm gonna go fuck with Posey again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you, you did not. That's just... what this all has been yes. this whole time. He gets bored, yeah. and then he's just like, ah, I'm gonna go fuck with old cum Posey yeah. again. <laughs> exactly. So he takes players from other teams like the the Chicago American Giants and the Baltimore Black Sox as well, and he runs an independent squad. But in 1945. Uh, knowing he wouldn't be admitted into a league again. Once again, he's like, I'm going to make my own league. <laughs> like, just, <laughs> we're doing it. And this time, he uh. gets support by an unlikely source Branch Ricky. Uh, Branch. Yeah. So, oh, Branch Ricky definitely saw this league as an opportunity to kind of create a black minor league. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted to do essentially. He wanted to be able to have a a a, a, a farm. He, he invented the farm system. Exactly, right? exactly. So he sees this as a so at this point this is forty this is forty five. So, so he's yeah, he Brooklyn now, right? Yeah, but he hasn't signed Robinson yet. Yeah, he hasn't that's signed. That's coming Robinson. soon. That's coming soon. So this happens before. So he sees this as a way to help his integration plan for baseball. Mm-hmm. He's like, not only am I going to sign a black player, but I'm going to get like. This league that I can start, you know, I can support it, and then I can convince Greenlee to let me take the best players and stuff like that. Yeah, um, so it's really once again people's motives. <laughs> that's playing suck. with fire, man. Yeah, that's playing with fire. Well, you know, it works <laughs> out kind of. Um, so uh, he offers that—that uh, that is, uh, Branch Rickey offers Ebbets Field and all the 22 ballparks controlled by the Brooklyn Dodgers for the U.S. League. 22 ballparks. Yeah. I don't know. how Holy it, like, shit. Yeah, I know. So the Hills, Hilldale club was shifted to Brooklyn. And for the love of God, I guess there was the black Yankees, but they're renamed the Brown Dodgers. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? I don't know. Oh, that's, that's really, I don't know. Uh, so, um, they were also managed, uh, by former Crawford's player manager, Oscar Charleston. Uh-huh. So familiar face coming back. Uh, the league—he's uh, just managing now. Yeah, he's, he's not not like 47, 48 okay, at this say. point. The, yeah. the league situated uh, franchises in Pittsburgh, Brooklyn, Chicago, Boston, Detroit, Cleveland, and Philadelphia, and of course, everything was run out of Greenlee's Crawford Grill. <laughs> 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 so Greenlee decided not to make himself president; instead, mm-hmm. appointing former player and lawyer John Shackelford. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not related to Rusty. (laughs) No. I was going to ask. Oh, of course. (laughs) So he's learned his lesson, though, of like not uh, being the figurehead, but he just appoints somebody, essentially. Yeah. And the guy used to play in the the Negro National League, I believe. Um, But... Actually, I should probably look that up. It could have been I I don't know. Um, hey. But anyways, I'm not gonna just say. But this is also kind of to just protect the league uh, from Greenlee's creditors. <laughs> also, oh. oh no. So he's being sued by the U.S. government he needs a at this patsy. point. Yeah, he's being he's being just like Al Capone or just like any gangster. Long enough, the, the government ends up trying to go after him for failure to pay income taxes. Essentially, mm-hmm. they're like weird. You paid like a thousand dollars in income tax, but you bought forty buildings. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's that about? What's that about? You said you made uh, twenty thousand dollars, yet you spent two million. Like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so, um, they're coming after him. So a little bit of this was just him hiding, like, not exposing the league. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same point, this wouldn't really last. Branch Rickey's endorsement and and assistance is great, but you know, he signs Robinson and that all gets in motion. Um, so he doesn't really support it much after that. And, uh, it only lasts about a season and a half before folding. And actually, I mean, there's even people are like, we don't really know if there was a season in 1945 (laughs) or if they just like announced this and played some games. Like it was, didn't really pan out. Yeah. Or they were like, yeah, it was like a, I guess it was a league, but it was, they just kind of like, you know, played whenever. Like, (laughs) so, um, Ricky signs Robinson. It seems very vastly different from earlier when he was like, I need a schedule. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. He just doesn't give a fuck at this point, too. Yeah. Like, he's, it's like he likes being a baseball owner, but he's not, you know, he's not in it. His heart's not in it the same way. Yeah, anymore. He doesn't fun. have the passion. Yeah. So, Ricky uh, signs Robinson in 1945, later that year, uh, and soon more teams follow suit. As more and more black players signed with MLB teams, Negro League's baseball was doomed to die a slow death. As the level of play slowly dwindled, the team struggled to compete. And the Negro National League, the league Greenlee had formed in 1933, was gone by 1949. So, Mm -hmm. that's one thing I really love about uh, uh, the book on F. Manley by, by, I believe, Andrea Williams. Mm -hmm. Is it really does kind of look at it, you get this glimpse from the other side of like the black owner's perspective. Where they're like oh, this is great, players are integrating, but this also means that... That we're fucked. We're fucked. Yeah. And you're just taking our players with no compensation. Mm-hmm. Like, very rare. I think there was, like, one owner that that gave compensation or something like that. I think it was... Was it V... Was it Vec? I don't know. Anyways, but there was something that, that was just... It just... They, Branch Ricky just wasn't necessarily the hero we think he is, if you look at it from that angle. Yeah. He's yeah. actually the one that like kind of mm-hmm. set in motion to destroy, but it's like so it's nuanced. There's there's no good or bad necessarily, mm-hmm. but it all depends which perspective you're looking at it from. Um, but the league doesn't last, uh, as I said, none of the leagues last, and Greenlee suffers a heart attack in July of 1946. At 50 years old, maybe. Who knows how the fuck old this guy was? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so after that, that's what Somewhere I Somewhere to... between 46 and... 52 50. or something mm-hmm. like that? Somewhere I don't know. <laughs> after that, it seems his time as a powerful mover and shaker had come to an end. In 1950, he became quite ill, spending... Well, he already had a heart attack. Spending six months in a veterans hospital in Aspenwall, Pennsylvania. The next year, his famous nightclub, the Crawford Grill, burnt down... And would never be rebuilt. Oh no. And Gus Greenlee died at home after suffering a stroke on July 7th, 1952, and is interned at the Allegheny Cemetery in Pittsburgh. Same one as uh, Josh Gibson as well. Hmm. So uh, that's the story of, of Gus Greenlee. I think that's, we we've covered black baseball players, black umpires. Uh, but that was the first black owner story. And there's there's a few more, obviously, with Composey and Effa Manley and, and all yeah, these amazing, yeah. amazing people from the time. Um, but, yeah, holy shit, Gus Greenlee was, like, innovative, kind of fucked up, but also, like, I don't know. What did what did you take from that? Uh, I feel like he really put me on the spot when I, I have uh, not a lot of sleep. But, uh, <laughs> uh, that that was just, I don't know, that was just an amazing story of, like, and it's just kind of, what I take from it is that, like, everyone is just kind of the same. <laughs> <Yes>. You know? <laughs> everyone is the same. There's so many similar themes, like, from that story to any of the Fiddly other owner or stories or that we Ricky. Told, yeah, no, know? there's so many. I mean, in the end, you know, power corrupts. Completely, mm-hmm. but it's also super interesting to just learn about this guy that, that you know he did have all the means, or the, you know the you know that that could be given to him at the time. He was mm-hmm. still a black man in America in the in the turn of the century, right? Like it yeah. was, it was not a. But at the same point, he had all the means and he became super wealthy. And like that's what I mean. He's not like he's like kind of an antihero. It's like watch Boardwalk Empire. The Gus Greenlee could be nookie Thompson. Like it's it's a hundred percent the same right kind over of my story. Head, but no, I know, I know. But like I mean right. without the shooting and the murder and stuff like that, like he was a booze runner and a numbers guy, but he was also a philanthropist and a banker and mm-hmm. a businessman, a baseball man. Like it, you know, it's it's Yeah, it contributed a lot to the community. Yeah. And like that's the thing is like some shady things going on. Yeah, so it all you depends, know, you know, it all depends what it's not necessarily too bad of a thing, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're gonna let you get some sleep, Etsy. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> until until next time, follow us on uh, the Twitter at, at Doing Baseball, uh, at Instagram on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. I am Sean does baseball. Sean do baseball. Sean do baseball. even know your own Twitter handle? I don't know my own Twitter Sean handle. Sean do baseball and Reds do baseball. Yeah, that's right. So give us a give us a like or a follower, a review. I don't know. You I gonna get know. that burp out or oh, what? Oh god damn it! Like, I've had, <laughs> I've been pretty gassy this whole time. I'm not gonna follow lie, you on tired. Twitter at Doing Baseball. Follow us on Instagram at Doing We already said that. I know. I'm gonna get it out again. You were just repeating it, whatever. I'm, I'm so tired. You go it's to just, bed. Okay. Spotify, give us a review because you can do that if you listen to us enough. Uh, Apple Podcast, give us a review too. Find us on Podbean. Tell your friends. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. And we were doing some baseball. Okay, good night. And the lockout. Okay, good night. Good night.